Hello, and welcome to episode 114 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. And this year, I'm counting my way down the Tennis 128, writing essays about the 128 best players of the last century. And the latest name I revealed was Goran Ivanisevic. And to join me today and talk about Goran Ivanisevic is a great tennis writer and familiar face on tennis Twitter, Anna Mitrich. Anna, welcome. Hey, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me here. I am happy to have you join me. Um, you can find Anna's writing at AnnaMitrich.net and find her on Twitter, Anna underscore Mitrich. Um, and I recommend, of course, that you do so. So let's dive right into the Goran Ivanisevic story. Anna, you told me that you were a Goran fan from the very beginning, long before you were doing this tenor t- tennis Twitter nonsense and, and following tennis as closely as you do now. So how did that happen? How did you become an Ivanisevic fan so early on? Um, well, I was just, I was a general tennis fan. My, my parents both played tennis and my dad was a tennis fan. And so back in the day when, you know, tennis was actually on network television, we would watch, you know, all the major events and stuff like that. And then when we would go to Yugoslavia in the summers, there would be, um, you know, you know, particular focus on the players from that region. So I, you know, I just picked up on him basically from, you know, spending time in, in, in the former Yugoslavia, including Croatia, where uh, we used to go regularly. So, um, and I guess, you know, I, I always had an eye, I always had my eye out for players who were from that place. And he was, he was probably this, the second player from Yugoslavia who, who I'd ever heard of. And who was the first? Uh, the first was Slobodan Živojinovic, who was known uh, known in Serbia as Boba and known in the rest of the world as Bobo Živojinovic. And his his claim to fame is that he um, he won the U.S. Open in doubles. Uh, I want to say eighty six, eighty eight. His his peak was right before Ivanisevic really got got started, and he he also made um, he also made the semifinals and singles at Wimbledon. In the in uh, I think it was 1986. So he was a contemporary of Boris Becker's. He played doubles with Becker Becker sometimes. And so for me, that was really that was really the first time that I had the experience of being a fan of a player who was also from the place that my family was from, which was which was a really cool feeling for me. And a lot of people thought that men's tennis was kind of boring at that point. Like it had gotten to be so, so focused on the big serving and super short points. And it, was the attraction to, to even Isovic for you, was it just that he was from Croatia or was it the personality? Cause I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't the game, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't the game. I, um, I think like a lot of people, I, kind of tuned out a little bit in terms of men's tennis in the 90s. You know, there was Krychek, Sampras. I mean, I know it's like sacrilege to say anything negative about Pistol Pete, but I just I just wasn't really a fan of that style of of tennis that a lot of the players, the men's players were were doing. So in the in the especially in the 90s, I really kind of shifted much more so over to the WTA. But um, Goran was one of the ex- exceptions be- because of his personality. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, 
you know, even though Bjorn Borg was my very first tennis crush and he does not fit this, this profile, I've always been drawn to the more demonstrative players. And I'm sure that's, you know, partly my own background. The other side of my family is Irish roots. So like I come from demonstrative people on both sides and, uh, and basically like, uh, so I, I was drawn to Ivan Isovich because I related to him and because I recognized him, like physically, he's a very, you know, he's a, he's a very Dalmatian type. Like he's a very recognizable type to me from spending summers on the, the Adriatic coast and personality wise. Yeah. He just, he just spoke to me. So it, a lot of it was his, his personality and his charisma. And I basically kind of forgave the, the game, if, if you will. Right. So the, the, the other big name of that point was Monica Sellis. She was there yeah. in, in the same year. So you mentioned, you mentioned one other player already. And what was, what was the overall state of tennis at that point in, in the Balkans? Because you have two very good players in Goran and Monica Sellis arriving at the same time. Um, but looking back historically, you can find some Yugoslavian players before that, but it, it's, I mean, it seems, it seems like there weren't a lot of stars, right? No, there weren't a lot of stars. And actually, um, you know, every, every, you know, I would assume that most of the people listening to this podcast know who Miki Pilic was. Um, you know, he was a, he was a big name uh, because he was part of the Handsome Eight, you know, one of the first kind of groups of the touring professionals on, on the, the precursor to the, some of the precursors to the ATP in the late sixties and early seventies. And then he also became uh kind of a cause celeb among ATP players and I think some WTA players as well in 1973, where there was a boycott at Wimbledon due to a conflict between Pilic and the Yugoslav Tennis Federation. Uh, and so there's kind of this gap between Niki Pilic, who, who was probably the, the biggest international uh, star from the, the former Yugoslavia, and um, Zhivojinovic, you know, it's not to say that there weren't some other good players. There's actually a guy named Goran Perpich, who was uh, the Goran before Goran, if you will. Like, he he was a good player. I think his career high was something like number 16. Um, and he's a couple years, uh, a couple years older, more than a couple years, probably. I think he's 1964. So, um, so there, you know, there were these people, but they didn't, yeah, they didn't rise to that international Kind of level, and the thing about Zhivojinovic is that um, first of all, there were some home to home Davis Cup ties in the mid to late '80s that be, that were that basically um, were kind of the birth of tennis as as something popular in the former Yugoslavia. Were these Davis Cup ties, um, and the Yugoslav Davis Cup team made a semifinal in the late '80s. Uh, I think they got trounced by Germany in 1988. And, they, you know, they played a couple of quarterfinals at home. And uh, Zhivojinovic also happened to be dating a pop star, a Bosnian-born pop star who went by the name of Lepa Brena, which means pretty Brena or beautiful Brena. And uh, so basically, like, the, the, the combination of his tennis prowess uh, and the fact that he was dating this pop star made him, like, tabloid fodder. And so, and he was also kind of an attractive guy. He had some swagger and tennis had a reputation as sort of a prissy sport in, um, particularly in Serbia. 
And suddenly here was this guy who wasn't prissy at all. You know, he was a man's man and he was playing tennis. So that that really gave tennis a push in the mid to late 80s in that region. And then when Ivan Isovich and Selis, Selis arrived on the scene, like people were ready for it. Well, that's so interesting. I, I mean, there's certainly so many, so many periods of time in other countries where tennis would overcame the uh, sort of the prissy tag, but I, I've never heard of it happening so late, but that, that does explain the gap. That's interesting. Um, I mean, another, another person who was pretty important at that time was Yelena Gencic and yes. name I'm probably butchering, but she, she was an influence in Selish and Ivanisevic and players before that players after that. And of course, Novak Djokovic. Um, I mean, it, it, what kind of role did she play? And I mean, how was, how was she so good at picking all of these stars at such an early age? Yeah. I mean, there, there, there had, you know, there had long been, uh, you know, regular Yugoslavs who played who played tennis. I mean, you know, Yugoslavia participated in Davis Cup going all the way back, you know, to the earlier 20th century. It just hadn't it just hadn't really like taken off. And so I think Jelena Gencic was part of um, what I would call a sort of like professional middle class in the former Yugoslavia. You know, she wasn't just an athlete. Uh, she played handball as well as tennis. But she she was all also a um, TV producer with the uh, what was then called, I think, Radio Television Belgrade, which is kind of part of the national kind of the national broadcaster. And so, you know, there were a whole bunch of people who who were playing tennis recreationally and participating, you know, in these camps and that kind of thing. Why why she had such a good eye for talent? I, I really I really don't know enough. Uh, enough about kind of the earlier part of her career but I will say this about the former Yugoslavia uh as as was the case in many socialist countries it was quite egalitarian um in terms of like on kind of the public front and the economic front in terms of education in terms of jobs and in terms of sports and all of you know Yugoslavia like all of these other countries had all of these government um funded clubs um, and so there was a system, you know, there was kind of like a farm system of these tiers. And and there's sort of remnants of that today with like Partizan and Red Star and these other clubs that the the familiar names of, you know, the, the Serbian tennis boom in the, in the uh, last decade. Pe- people kind of know those players. They all came up through this club system. But Gencic was part of that. I mean, Gencic was part of this world in which women's sports were, you know, just as just as important as particularly if they were Olympic sports and Yugoslavia was a sports powerhouse. Is is that possibly part of the explanation as well that I, I didn't think about this until your very last few words there that I, I know a lot of a lot of the socialist countries in, invested huge amounts of money in their sporting programs, partly because of the, the soft power influence of of winning medals. And you still see that with especially with China today. Um, funneling kids really young into in, into sports programs and often picking sports for them. Uh, like Lee Na was not a tennis player at first. She was she was funneled pretty aggressively in that direction. Um, and do you think that that tennis became more of a priority at, at that level in Yugoslavia as soon as there were medals to be won? You know that that is a really interesting question, and I would be I would just be 
bullshitting to be honest <laughs> if i if i tried to if i tried to answer i i don't i don't i don't know i don't know if that's the case uh, but what i what but, but what i can say for sure is that sadly uh the last days of Yugoslav tennis were the best days of Yugoslav tennis. I mean, the, the peak of Yugoslav tennis is really the mid to late eighties and early nineties. And um, yeah. And that, that does coincide right with um, was it 1988? That was the first year that they reintroduced tennis. Yeah. 84. It was a demonstration event in Los Angeles, I think. And was Sabrina goals Yugoslavian? She won the, uh, she was the runner up to Steffi Graf. She's Croatian. Yeah. She was the runner up to Steffi Graf in the, the 1984 um, exhibition event. But then 88 was the first, the first year that it was, it was back as a full Olympic sport. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, just to kind of, to, to, to segue back, back to, uh, to Goran, I mean, as you know, he won two Olympic medals in 1992 for the very, very fledgling independent, you know, Croatia, as it, as it currently is. And he was also the flag bearer. So it's, it's sort of interesting because the timeline, the timeline is such that, I mean, the, the breakup of Yugoslavia basically happened like right after tennis got back into the Olympics. And then Goran, you know, won these two uh, medals for Croatia. And that was, you know, that, that, made him a national hero long before uh he won Wimbledon you know almost a decade later yeah and I, I wanted to ask you about that I clearly that's a big deal I and I, I just saw that Croatia won they won three medals at the 92 Barcelona Olympics and two of them were were Goran's bronzes um and then I noticed the third one was the silver medal in men's basketball which yes to me that's that seems like a not a bigger accomplishment, but a more, a much more newsworthy one, partly because this is the year of the dream team and the silver medal in Olympic men's basketball. I mean, that's really the gold medal. I mean, they, they beat everybody except for this ridiculous team of NBA stars. So to me, if, if I didn't know anything about tennis or its, rel- its relative importance in the world of sports, I would think, like, I would think a men's basketball silver medal would be like a hundred times bigger news, so much of a bigger deal than a couple of bronze medals in tennis, but it seems like that's not the case. Am I, am I right? About well, that? well, I, I really think it's just sort of the difference between an individual sport and a team sport. I mean, that, believe me, that, that medal in, in basketball was a huge deal. And if you, uh, you know, if any of your listeners follow basketball, they will know just how many current NBA players are from the former Yugoslavia, how many NBA players, you know, in the late, in the, you know, it was really the eighties um, was really the time that international players kind of broke through in the NBA. So there's people like Vlada Divac and, and, and others. And so there was, you know, there's a, there's um, yes, both Croatia and Serbia and now Slovenia have, 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 they've all done incredibly well as independent countries in basketball and, you know, I, I feel like Yugo nostalgia, which is a thing, and um, I I confess to being Yugo nostalgic um, at at times, and it comes out big time when Eurobasket rolls around, or the Olympics roll around, or the FIBA World Champions roll around, because there's this refrain of just imagine if Yugoslavia was still one country. I mean, 
they would be crushing. They, you know, they would be, maybe they wouldn't be beating the U.S. every year, but they would be routinely, you know, finishing in the top, in the top three at any of these international competitions. I, I don't, I don't, I don't normally make, I don't make, normally make counterfactual claims like that. So I, I'm actually uncomfortable with what I just said. Um, well, I mean, I'm but, curious but about I would that just say, without yeah. getting too far afield or purposely getting too far afield, but promising to come back in a minute. Um, I mean, do you think part of that sporting development has happened because there, there are now several independent countries who are competing with each other? Because if you have a, a single talent funnel, then maybe you don't come up with like three or more national teams worth of great players, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's because they're competing against each other. To be honest, I think there's like a, a more like sad and depressing explanation for it, which is that sports is a path out. Um, you know, if you think about, if you think about kind of the demographics of the big money American sports, uh, and how, you know, how, how many, you know, the how high the percentage of African-Americans is in both basketball and football relative to the overall population. Um, you know, we know in this, from why well, I realize you're not in the U S anymore, but I'll just pretend that you are for the moment, like in this country, sports is a way out. Um, of economic, you know, hardship. And I think in the former Yugoslavia, that is absolutely the case. In Serbia, it's absolutely the case. I mean, they, they love their sports. Don't get me wrong. It, they're, it's like a sports mad culture, but it is also the case that in the last, you know, 20 to 30 years since the onset of the wars and the breakup of Yugoslavia, um, I don't want to say it was like easier to make your way out being an athlete, but being an athlete was something that you you could have control over your destiny in a way like you you could train you could invest your own money you didn't have to rely on a system you didn't have to rely on getting a job after college you know and I've talked to a lot of the players particularly somebody like Nana Dimonich is a is a great example and also the closest contemporary to to Goran Ivanisevic uh, about this you know about the way that sports was like this empowering path where you could kind of take control of your destiny when everything around you was like going to shit. That would generate a lot of talent. I also, you mentioned the other American sports. I would also mention Latin Americans in, or not, yeah, yes. Latin Americans in baseball, um, especially yes, coming out of the Dominican. It's exactly the same sort of phenomenon. Um, yeah. And I mean, let me just say as a side note, like, you know, people have, people have observed over the years, uh, including, um, the ASAP transcriptionists who work at all of the major events, like they've noted how articulate the Serbian players in particular, just because there were more of them, you know, during that, during that period of uh, Ana Ivanovic, Jelena Jankovic, Janko Tetsarovic, you know, Novak, et cetera. Like they noticed how articulate they all were. I mean, th- those people, I think any of them could have been quite successful in whatever avenue they chose. They're all quite smart, you know, uh, people. Uh, and so it's striking to me that they chose sports. And, and I think it's telling that they chose sports because the avenues for success in so many other fields were dead ends. And there's so much brain drain in that region. And there's so much, um, oh, di- you know, dis- dis- disaffection and just malaise and unemployment, you know, so it's just, it's just, it's very striking how, uh, 
yeah, yeah, just that they 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 all chose sports and they stuck with it and they did really well. So even Isovich obviously is a generation before the sort of players you're talking about now. But yeah. would would you would you put him in the same category as someone who you know chose sports as a way out or could have done a lot of other things, but often off- no. No, okay. <laughs> no, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't mean that as like an insult. I just mean that he, you know, he, I really, I really think that you, one can't really compare kind of pre-war and post-war, like the, all of the, um, you know, all of the Serbian players who I mentioned are all like products of the nineties, um, just because of their age, you know, most of them were born in the, the mid to late eighties, not, not Zimone, she's a special case, but the other ones. And so they, you know, they were, they picked up their rackets, you know, roughly at the time that the wars were starting, you know, even Isovic is a different, is a different story. And also he was, you know, he was, his parents were professional middle-class. I mean, his mom was an engineer, his dad was a professor. So I think his path was just different. And I, to be honest, um, I just, I haven't talked, to him enough to get a real sense of uh yeah I haven't got, I talked to him enough to get a real sense of sort of what were his other interests um I know that he was you know I know he was playing basketball and I know he was playing soccer as well he seems like he was a real athletic you know kid from the get-go and so I yeah I just wouldn't put him in that category primarily for historical reasons right that makes sense um so while, while we are talking about the the war and the the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. You mentioned before Yugoslavia had a very pretty strong Davis Cup team in the late 80s and early 90s. And even Isovich played several ties um, in 19, I think starting in 88, but until early 1991. And he stopped when Croatia declared independence as one would do if you're no longer consider yourself a citizen of the country you're playing Davis Cup for. Um, in in the few years leading up to that, would there have been tension on the Davis Cup team or on other Yugoslavian athletic teams between I mean, the Davis Cup teams had a pretty decent mix of Croatians and Serbians? I'm not sure whether there was any other national groups in there, but would there have been tension there? You know, I, I, I can't say um, like the only sort of point of of reference or comparison that I have is to a, an event at a, at a basketball um, game in the, but those, those were sort of in the early nineties when stuff was already really bubbling up in other ways. I mean, so there were, there were tense, tense, uh, there was a tense soccer match in Croatia. There was a basketball game where somebody held up a Yugoslav flag and somebody else tore it down, or maybe it was a Croatian flag. So there were definitely tensions started bubbling up um in in the early 90s but i don't i don't know that that was the case in tennis um you know you know and our the listeners know that tennis players are they're kind of in a bubble and i think especially with the pre-internet you know things are really different now i mean you know players travel with phones they travel with laptops they're checking their social media um apps and and accounts all the time you know even so they tend to be in a bubble and so but I think that probably in the late 80s and early 90s they they probably in 1990 specifically until there was sort of like referendum votes and stuff like that I I doubt that the players were super attuned to like political political developments 
it, it seems like Ivanisevich, he, he, I mean, when that stuff started happening, like he, he was quite attuned to it. Like he left, he left the yes. club, Davis cup team. And I mean, he, he sort of accepted this role as an international representative of Croatia. Um, I mean, it, yeah. it, is, is that right that he took that on himself early in the process? Yes, it is right. And it's actually, you know, it's funny because when I, um, is, you know, like a decade ago when I first started thinking um, about writing, writing a book about, about, about tennis, I, I, I drafted a, um, like I had a table, you know, draft sort of table of contents. And my, my, one of my chapters was called my bittersweet birthday present from Goran with love. And that was about 2000 and his 2001 win, which for me, you know, I, I was rooting for him and I rooted for him the whole time, but it was, it was bittersweet to me uh, because it, I, it couldn't, it could not be anything to me, but a reminder of the breakup in general, but also specifically things that he said, you know, in the early nineties. And he said some pretty, he said some pretty rough things about, about Serbs and Serbia, and even about Monica Selish, who was an ethnic Hungarian, but born and raised in, in Serbia and, you know, representing Serbia. And so, I mean, sorry, representing Yugoslavia. Um, And so it was, you know, it was hard. It was hard for me to fully fully embrace him then even though I had you know I had earlier but then he he really um I don't want to say like he stuck a dagger in the heart of his you know non-Croatian fans I mean that's just going a bit too far but I would say this uh he was 19 19 and a half when um Croatia declared independence so I put everything kind of in context of what, how old he was and the fact that he was a young man and the fact that people he knew joined, you know, the, the Croatian defense forces and were fighting in the wars. And so he was very, he was very heated. You know, he was very gone. He was very outspoken. And it's, it's actually interesting to compare his comments that he made, you know, whether 1991, 1992, at the U.S. Open and so on, Wimbledon, to the comments of Goran Prpić, who was also, you know, a Croatian, who also left the Yugoslav Davis Cup team, but who was several years older and was just much more level and, you know, sort of circumspect and and kind of sad in his comments about the war. Whereas Goran was running around saying things like, "My racket is my gun." What What was the sort of thing that Goran Prpić was saying? Well, I mean, Prpić. Per- which was just acknowledging that it was sad and acknowledging that it was, you know, complicated, but he just, he wasn't making belligerent comments. Let's just put it that way. I mean, Ivanisevich was making like, you know, objectively belligerent comments. He, 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 you know, he was, he was talking about, he was talking about, actually I have a, um, I have a line here. So just, just so your readers, I mean, sorry, readers, your listeners will know. Uh, Most of them can read. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but even Isevich was sometimes saying things like, you know, I was imagining, you know, it was tough for me to play and all this kind of thing. But then he was saying, I see people fighting here. I want to fight like they're fighting. Um, and then he says, uh, 
there were, you know, there were death threats apparently against Ivanisevich in January of 92 when he was in at, playing in Adelaide. And so he got like a police escort and, you know, this kind of thing. He, and here's, here's a comment that he made at the time. I wasn't worried. He said the two policemen who were, you know, assigned to guard him. I go to the practice range with them. They show me how to shoot just for fun. They let me shoot machine gun. It was tough to control, but oh, nice feeling. All the bullets coming out. I was thinking it nice to have some Serbs standing in front of me. And, and let, me, let me just pause here and say, Ivan Isevich is, is a grown man now. He doesn't say things like that. And on the contrary, he's coaching, you know, a Serbian player. He coached Milos Raonic before that, in addition to Cilic. And he also, when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, you know, made a point of making, of recognizing his Yugoslav Davis Cup teams and saying it was a privilege to play for two countries. And so I really think that everything that he said at the time was, you know, part and parcel of, of the, the, the anguish and the, and the rage and the pain of a young man seeing a war around him, you know, threatening threatening the li lives and livelihood of people he knew and involving his friends, you know, on the front line. So I forgive him, you know, for, for <laughs> saying some of the kind of the nasty things that he said at the time. And I, and I understand why he said them, but, but it is the case that, that uh, Perpich was not saying those things. Yeah. I mean, you know, Perpich said things like, I don't feel any reason to play for a country that doesn't exist. Um, but he also said things like, um, this is, this is, I think in, let's see, August of 91. So this is at the U S open. Perpich said, uh, you know, he'd been back to Yugoslavia, you know, to, 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 you know, change clothes and get, get new rackets and kind of thing. He has no intention of joining the Croatian army. It's hard to kill, to fight someone when six months ago, you were a friend, Perpich said, it's very stupid. Yeah, it is interesting so to, com to compare that, that whole situation with, I mean, with, with the, the current Russian invasion of Ukraine, because we, we, we hear a lot about the perspective of Ukrainian players right now. And maybe it's just that there aren't any famous 19 year old Ukrainian men players, but um, everyone has a comment, but no one's speaking out in the same way that Goran did then. Yeah. And let me, let me just, let me just add a comment from, from Celis who um, came under fire uh, from Ivanisevich the next year, 1992 in Wimbledon, basically saying like, what does she think? She's playing for a flag. You know, she's playing under the Yugoslav flag. She's playing for a place that doesn't exist. I mean, he, he kind of went out of his way to, um, to, to, to criticize her uh, for not speaking out, but her, her take was this, uh, this is again, us open 1991 politics are for politicians that's their job. I always talk to my grandparents and I ask them if they're all right. They're very safe. I think that's the most important thing. You know, so her, her take was just, it was very narrow. It was very much just on safety of loved ones. And, you know, she just wasn't getting into the bigger, the bigger thing. But yeah, I mean, who, who I mean, you know, we've got Sergei Stakovsky, uh, of course, has joined the Ukrainian army, um, right. I yeah. guess. But you know, I mean, in some ways, I sort of feel like Goran was at liberty to say all those things because he wasn't he wasn't actually on the front line. You know, he 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 could talk like that because he was buffered. Yeah. And he, I, I know he, he would go back to Croatia during the conflict, but he had a residence in Monte Carlo. So he could he could kind of choose how engaged he wanted to be. 
Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that although, you know, Split probably experienced some damage, just as Dubrovnik did, um, and, you know, some other parts of that Adriatic coast, for the most part, that's not where the fighting was, that's not where the fighting was going on. I mean, and I'm not, I, you know, I'm just sort of aware of like every single thing I say is potentially going to be offending someone. So I, I guess I want to, I want to pause for a second here and take, you know, to kind of just take a step back and say, those wars were complicated. They were messy. There's a lot of blame and a lot of responsibility to go around. All kinds of people said and did terrible things. War crimes were committed. Uh, in the name of Yugoslavia, in the name of Serbia, for sure. Also, sadly, in the name of Bosnia, in the name of Croatia. I think that but the narrative at the time was much more black and white than the reality was. And I think that, um, meaning, you know, good guys and bad guys, victims and aggressors, this sort of thing. And I, I think that... What, what we see reflected and what we have seen reflected in the relationships among the tennis players from the former Yugoslavia over the past 20 years is that for the majority of people, they recognize that they have so much more in common than they have differences. And that basically the war was the product of all kinds of messy, ugly political things and power struggles, but that fundamentally it wasn't really about, you know, hatred between these, these, these groups of people. Yeah. And certainly not among people like tennis players. Yeah, cer- certainly not. So I just, you know, I take everything that Goran said at the time with a grain, you know, with a grain of salt. And uh, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to be honest about the fact that at the time it was painful um, the things that he was saying was painful for me. And so I had, you know, I had mixed feelings about, about him subsequently, even though I was rooting for him, as I'm sure most people in all parts of the former Yugoslavia were rooting for him, including, by the way, a young Novak Djokovic. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll in get 2001. To we'll, we'll get to him eventually. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, now, hopefully within, within a within a pretty short time after those initial comments and, and the death threats and, and his time at the gun range and all that, even Isovich did grow up a little bit and he wasn't spouting that kind of stuff through his whole career. But it seems like until pretty close to the 2001 Wimbledon championship, he, he thought of himself as playing for his country. Like at, at, he was also, he made some comments about finally playing for himself and he was partly referring to playing for Croatia and partly referring to playing to, to make money to support his sister, who I think had cancer and recovered. Yes. Um, but so how, how did, how do you think that evolved? Like if he was no longer, you know, fighting a war with his racket, like in 1995, 1997, if he still felt like he was playing for Croatia, what would that mean at that point? What would that mean in 95 and 97 and in yeah. that period? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, what you know, just just to remind listeners, um, Croatia, de- Croatia and Slovenia de- declared independence in June of 1991. Uh, there were definitely you know skirmishes and fighting and so on, but it really didn't pick up until 1992, early 92, when um, basically the international community recognized those those places, and the the fight the uh, Slovenian war you know lasted about a week, 
we won't get into that, the reasons why, but the, you know, the messiest part, the messiest part was always Bosnia because it's between Croatia and Serbia and it had this uh, more, this ethnic mix. Um, but then there were also parts of Croatia that had uh, heavy Serbian populations. And so the fighting in those areas continued until 1995. Okay. So I, I would just say that, you know, the, the, the wars, those, you know, the, the heaviest, most intense part of those wars were 92 to 95. And so it makes complete sense to me that it wouldn't have been until the later 90s that, you know, that Ivan Isovic felt a little bit more like settled. There was still the, the, the lingering nationalism, maybe more if, if we, what I meant to, I, I was thinking the war was over in 1994, but I'm clearly not an expert on this at all. Um, but if we're thinking like the late nineties before he wakes up to this idea that he can play for himself, he, he's still playing as a representative of his country more than I would say most other tennis players. Right. I mean, does, does that seem right to you that. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think that that's the case that may be the case, not just for countries that are at war, but really for any little country, you know, okay. like uh, any little country that doesn't have a lot of, particularly if they're, you know, a new country, a newly independent country, even if, even if that independence came about in a less violent manner um, than, than Croatia's did, I just think it's a really big deal um, to, you know, rep- represent your country when, you know, you're not, I mean, going back to the the medal count that you mentioned from 1992, I mean, three medals and two were in tennis. That's a really big deal. Like for, I mean, I don't know how many medals the United States generally wins at a summer Olympics, but it's, 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 it's not in the single digits. Let's just put it that well, way. And so that's for, telling in itself, you know, just, if you don't even know within, within say 20 medals, what the typical number is, it's gotta be pretty big. Yeah. It's gotta be pretty big. And all we need to do is look back at, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on her name. Um, Monica, Monica, Puig. I want to say, yeah, Monica Puig. I mean, you know, look at how much that meant to her and to, and to her, her compatriots, you know, like it's a huge, huge deal. So I would say that it's not merely about, you know, a country at war and those particular circumstances, but also just being from a small place that a lot of people in the the Western world and the tennis world, you know, couldn't place on a map. Um, however, I, w- I will just say, as, as, as you're going to notice that I'll try to sneak Nena Zimunic in here as, as often <laughs> as I can, uh, um, you know, Zimunic had his best run at Wimbledon in 19 as a singles player in 1999. And I just know that, you know, he, he and he and he and Gordon are really close friends these days. And I'm sure for a long, a long time, but then they, they, they weren't. And they, and I've, I've talked to Nenad about the fact that, you know, Goran was really the guy who had the war not happened would have been his, his sort of mentor as a pro, you know, would have been the person, the obvious person for him to kind of look to as a, as a guide for how to make it. And Zimunich was really on his own because he couldn't, he, he and Goran did not have that relationship and he didn't feel that he could, um, you know, he didn't really feel that he could approach him and treat him you know, in the same way that, let's say, a younger Croatian player would now uh, treat um, Martin Cilic or even Borna Cioric or a younger Serbian player would treat, 
you know, Djokovic, Tipsadovic, Troitsky, etc. So that was in the late nineties. That was still the case. Okay. Um, I, 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 I was getting stuck on the more basic fact that Nenad Zimenech was playing singles. It's almost impossible to remember him doing that. Oh yeah. Well, you know, that's a whole other story that I'd be happy to tell, you know, a different time, but Nenad Zimenech was the best player in Yugoslavia. Um, you know, he was the best player in Yugoslavia as a, as a junior and, he his career was the career that was most derailed by the war uh, because he was actually 16 when the when the um, fighting really took off in 1992. So the and the boy the um, sanctions affected him and affected his transition to the pros. So he he could have he 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 turned to doubles of necessity, not because he didn't have the quality to be a very good singles player. I'm looking forward to that chapter in your book. That's definitely a, a, a fascinating story. Um, but like you say, we'll have to save that one for another day. Yeah. Um, okay. So back to Goran and maybe as, as, as much as I could probably keep talking to you about the, um, about the war for the remainder of our time, well, I should probably try to move on. Um, you mentioned earlier, Richard Krychek, Pete Sampras, they were not the easiest guys to become big fans of, even if you were from their country. I suppose the Dutch people probably like Richard Krychek, but he's he's usually my whipping boy in these conversations because yes. he, he was like the epitome of boring men's tennis in the 90s. And he sure you, was. <laughs> if you look at just the numbers, I'm not sure that even Isavich looks that different than Krychek. But clearly, yeah. I mean, the the personality transcended that. You know, is it just that he was so demonstrative that made him so much more likable and fascinating to watch? I mean, how, how would you explain the difference between Ivanisevic and guys like Krychek? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was just that. I mean, I also think that, I also think a really big part of it was that his internal struggle played out, you know, kind of for all to see. I mean, this is a guy who made three Wimbledon finals and played you know, Agassi and played Sampras and all of the, all these guys before, and Becker, you know, for that matter, uh, before finally, you know, having this breakthrough. So I really, I really think that, I really think that we sort of can't, you know, understand the love for Goran without the, 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 at least, at least two contexts. One of which is that by the time he, you know, made that 2001 final, he was, you know, in many ways kind of a has been like it seemed like his best days were behind him he was an underdog he was a qualifier what was he ranked like 125 or something yeah. like that and he was weird yeah but he had he was a familiar face because he had been in three previous Wimbledon finals so he already had that you know he 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 already had that status as somebody who people wanted to pull for as an underdog then, of course, People's Monday, <laughs> you know, uh, that that was that was a setup that was like tailor made for a player like Ivanisevic and an Aussie player like Pat Rafter. I mean, it was like a dream come true to have those sorts of players and th- that sort of climate uh, like a Davis Cup. Uh, match rubber tie whatever at, at <laughs> Wimbledon so so you know I, I feel like Goran as underdog and Goran as um somebody who's 
one of whose biggest opponents was himself was a huge part of the appeal. You know, like, what's he going to do this time? Like that, you know, in a little, in a, in a way, in a way, hate to say it, but there's a Nick Kyrgios uh, kind of factor. Yeah, reporters do tend to go to Goran for comments on Nick Kyrgios for that very reason. Yeah, I mean, so there, there's this thing of like, you know, with Kyr- Kyrgios is obviously like a highlight reel type of player. He's a very different um in a lot of ways, a very different player. Although I do think he's a serve bot candidate, right? Isn't he, isn't there sort of a debate? Yeah. About whether he's a serve bot. I mean, he's got a lot of other, you know, kind of tricks in his bag. But but statistically, if people are arguing that they're wasting their time, it's not even, it's not even close. His return. Yeah. No, I just mean, I, I just mean that, um, I feel like his name maybe came up in the, in the, in the serve bot debate with um, Isner and, and Riley Opelka when they were kind of having their, they, they were sort of dis- discussing what their criteria was for being a serve bot. And I think that Nick maybe didn't qualify for their thing because according to them, a serve bot has to be boring to watch. And Kyrgios is not that. Okay. Well, that's, and that's I think fair. they just, I think they, yeah, I think they disqualified Ivanisevic for the same reason, which is that, he was not boring. And uh, so, so the thing, the thing, the thing, but the, the, the reason that I want to make the connection between the two is that people tuned in and people tune in now for curious matches and then for even Nisevich matches, partly because there was going to be drama. You know, there was, there was going to be drama. There were probably going to be outbursts. There might be racket smashes. For, you know, he might run out of rackets. He might not have his tennis shoes. I mean, you know, there were there were so many different possibilities, and one of them, of course, was the ongoing dialogue between Goran and 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 other Goran. <laughs> you know, that was part of the deal. Was kind of the 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 inner conflict. So I think I think all of those things combined to make him kind of a a fan favorite, despite the limitations of the game. And it, it it seems like some some of the things you mentioned would would make him more divisive today because certainly Curios is very divisive and people will turn tune in to watch what he does but some people uh, possibly including the host of this podcast are not really fans I mean he, he Kyrgios might yeah. be fascinating but he turns off a lot of people and it it seems like maybe Serbian fans accepted. Um, even Isovich didn't do that too much, did he? I mean, he, he did a lot of things that could be deemed offensive or certainly offensive to like the old fashioned strictures of the game. But I mean, is that right that he, he generally kept the fans on his side? Yeah. I mean, he, you know, first of all, he's got a great sense of humor. He's quite self-deprecating. Um, you know, there were just these comical moments. I mean, even like, I wish, you know, I wish if this show were like a video show, you would have to show clips of, you know, various Goran incidents, including times where he, you know, tried to get a chair umpire to correctly pronounce his name and stuff like that. And so, you know, there would be these times where he would be, you know, kind of ranting or he would be whatever, but there was, there was never, um, there was, I don't want to say never because somebody could probably pull out a clip to prove me wrong, but there was very rarely like a nasty edge to it. Like there was always more of a, of a, of a comical kind of, uh vibe and especially because he was just really great at kind of pointing out the absurdity of things including the absurdity of 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 himself you know i mean and he would 
throw himself on the ground or he would implore to the heavens, you know, he would, he would do these really demonstrative, um, cro you know, crossing himself and, and, and doing prayers. And I, I just, it wasn't, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm sure, I'm sure he, I'm sure he got all kinds of code violations and, and I'm sure there were traditionalists and purists who had a hard time with him, but it was, it was really hard to stay mad at Oran. The, the, the one example that I that seems to be the closest he, he would have come to really getting people lined up against him is there was some some instant where he got really angry at a linesman. And I think in the um, in in the post-match press conference, he referred to that linesman using a homophobic slur. Um, and I mean, it, it was a different time. These things were sadly let, not more accepted, but I mean, I guess we can say more accepted than they are now. I mean, he would get in a lot of trouble for that sort of thing now, but it oh, yeah. seemed like it kind of rolled off of him. And it, it didn't, as far, I mean, I'm not, I didn't read every newspaper article about him for a decade, but it's, it, it seems like it didn't really stick with his reputation the way that it would have done it would do with someone now if they if they reeled off a word like that about a linesman yeah no for sure and i mean the thing is is that Goran is, he he is still like that i mean i don't know that he would use a homophobic slur these days but he has certainly used you know sexist language uh and um you know i'll i'll keep it i'll keep it g-rated um for 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 the listeners but he you know, he, he's very much a product of his culture. I, you know, I think a lot of times people on Twitter think that I'm making excuses or defending certain things that are said and done by the players from that region, not just from Serbia, but, you know, in this case from, from Croatia and even, you know, from Bosnia. And the reality is I, I'm not defending them. You know, I have similar sensibilities to most North Americans of my socioeconomic and educational, you know, status. I'm a woman. I'm a feminist. Your Twitter bio says lefty crank. That's a good sign. I know. Exactly. Exactly. I'm, you know, I'm a progressive. But I, I've also been around the world, you know, and I grew up going to the former Yugoslavia. And I know what the culture is like. And the culture is... Uh, patriarchal and the culture is you know there's a lot of machismo there and is it a particularly gay friendly place no it is not you know that the catholic church in croatia and the orthodox church in serbia are big influences and they are not positive influences when it comes to things like lgbt rights and so on and so there's there's all kinds of stuff that we could talk about in terms of you know kind of social social attitudes and, and uh, norms and, you know, locker room culture and boys will be boys and all that kind of stuff. And I, I guess my feeling is simply this, which is if that's, if that's how you want to judge, you know, a person ha have at it. Um, there are plenty of people on Twitter who do that. There are plenty of people on Twitter who are, you know, very keen to call out all kinds of stuff. And um, I, I'm just not one of them. I, I don't, I don't know what to say other than that. I'm not a huge fan of kind of the, the call out culture on, on, on social media and the outrage generating, you know, outrage du jour. And, um, you know, if we want, if we want to get worked up about things that players have said, we, we can do that, but I'm really much more interested in a understanding them and B if possible, 
um, educating them, you know, like to be, to be better, to understand why that's not an okay thing to say. You know, I, a judgment is not like a huge, ju judging players is not like a huge part of my repertoire. So yeah, it seems like, it, it seems like you get a lot more insight about the people if you try to judge them based on who they are, where they came from and all that stuff, rather than where you'd like them to be. And like for, for Goran, that's very different from, from, I don't know, Riley Opelka, both in time and in, in where they started. I mean, it's, it, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, it, it's not quite historical at this point, but it feels almost historical. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't read a novel from 1910 and think, oh, this is, this is very controversial in its use of language or something like it's no, it was written in well, 1910. You know, some people do. What can I say? I mean, Huckleberry Finn is banned, you know, like uh, I, you know, it, it really depends, but I just think, um, I guess for me, it's just not the most interesting thing to do, you know, like it's, uh, I mean, in case people don't know, and we haven't talked about it. I mean, I was a professor before I started writing about tennis. And so for me, I'm always much more interested in like meeting the player where they're at, you know, or at least halfway and just like I would with a student. And if they say something that I find offensive, you know, I would certainly say so, you know, if it came up in, in an interview and I, you know, I've had plenty of off the record conversations with with Serbian players where I would sort of try to explain to them like, hey, you know what, I don't see it that way. And they'll be like, oh, you're an American, you know. So it, it's it's I just I just feel like it's a it's a pastime on tennis Twitter. I just don't I just don't find that interesting, you know, and I and I. And, uh, you know, which is not to say, like, I think it's cool to call Alliance person a fag. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I think it's bad. And I thought it was bad then. To yeah. me, that's the that's the main thing that it doesn't really matter whether you, whether you're whether a player is right or not and what they're saying, because in many of these cases, they're obviously not. No one's going to dispute that, you know, someone saying that a woman could ever be a coach or something like that or the sort of things that kind of effortlessly fall out of the mouth of players from certain places. Like, we're not going to argue the merits of those things, but you don't really understand the, the whole goal is to learn more about the players, to learn more about the, the, the culture and the time period. And you don't gain that by just like you say, like the call out culture approach of just like scanning yeah. for offense. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that to me, and I mean, again, like I am a bicultural person. I was born into a very diverse kind of setup. Like my parents literally met at a dorm for international students. Uh, you know, so I grew up around people from all over the world, even in the United States. Washington is a very diverse place, as I don't need to tell you. And I've traveled a fair bit. And one of the things that has always, always appealed to me about tennis is that you get to travel the world kind of virtually, um, you know, by following all these events in different places, but also following players from different places. And I, I, I one of the things, and I, I'll, I'll stop this rant in a second, we can get back to Garden, but one of the things that I find very strange about tennis Twitter is that there's this sort of assumption that the players should replicate the views of the tennis fandom, which is, you know, at least in terms of the tennis, uh, you know, Twitter that I am kind of privy to is like a very left of center um, kind of Western set of values. And hey, those are my values. But I at least recognize that they're not only not the world's values, they're not even the values of, a, you know, 75% of Americans. So I just, there's something very strange to me about this, this, this kind of assumption or desire 
for the tennis world to you know align with a certain set of views and to to be um, intolerant of of players who don't automatically share those views. I mean, by the way, I think the tours should share those values. I think the tours themselves could, especially the ATP, could be doing a much better job in terms of you know cultivating certain values and playing a role in kind of social social issues and that kind of thing. But to expect all the players to kind of be in lockstep, that that is very strange to me. Yeah. And the, the unfortunate outcome of that, I think, is, is it just encourages self-censorship. And like, not that I need to hear everything that comes out of everything that pops up in every player's mind, but like I, I was speculating earlier about what's the, it, there's not really an equivalent of like 19 year old Croatian war Goran right now for the Ukrainian war. And partly that's because maybe the, maybe it would be different if number seven on, in the men's ranking was an outspoken young Ukrainian. But if number seven in the world right now was an outspoken young Ukrainian, he would have gone through a lot more media training and suffered from a, a lot more attacks of various kinds online or via online into other media. And he would have learned by now, like whatever yeah, and, he really thinks. You wouldn't say your racket's a gun. <laughs> I think yeah, that comes and up the, on day one of media training. Yeah, the, yeah, and the other thing too is they've grown up. They've grown up on these people are all digital natives. You know, they they've grown up in this in this world. And I just to go back to kind of my own you know fandom and my experience with Thor. I'm like we. You have to remember that um, the internet did not exist in 1992. I mean, it did in sort of a primitive form, but as we know it, no. And, you know, I, I don't know if ASAP existed, but I was not looking online for every article about Goran. I wasn't tweeting about Goran. I wasn't on Goran's Instagram page making comments. I wasn't seeing every single thing that he said because it was published in the New York Times. It wasn't, you know, on Jose Morgado's Twitter feed. Just to pick one guy, nothing personal. He just happens to be a guy who has, you know, 90,000 followers or whatever. Some of you know, them might even so, be real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I'm saying like, it's just such a different landscape now in terms of media and social media and engagement with the public. It's just, you know, it's just worlds, worlds apart. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the New York Times in that period, I was getting most of my tennis news from Tennis Magazine. I was reading these stories two, three months after they happened. And I mean, I recognized at that point, like what I was reading was already out of date. Um, so you, oh. you can't you can't really have a firestorm if like the fire has already been put out and you weren't there. Well, yeah. And I mean, just imagine, for instance, just imagine one of those comments that I that I read to you about, you know, machine guns or whatever, it, you know, being said live on a stream at a U.S. Open press conference. I mean, that's just not happening. You know, that's just not happening for a whole bunch of other reasons. And I think player, you know, players are much more savvy now. They know that they know that even if they say something in a one-on-one interview, it's not staying exclusive. It's not staying in the language that they said it in. I mean, you know, just to pick Djokovic, I mean, he knows that even if he gives an interview in Serbian, it's going to get translated and it's going to be, you know, within 24 hours, it's going to be all over the world. So uh, you'd think he'd actually be a little bit more careful, but that's a different topic. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just so different. I don't think it, it's, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine anybody like Goran now. 
So speaking of Goran now, and speaking of Djokovic, so Ivanisevic was never known, I don't think, as a particularly brainy player. And maybe that was just the bias at the time against surf bots or people just didn't get Goran, or maybe they were right. I don't know. But he's been a, a very successful coach. He, he helped Marin Cilic to the, the U.S. Open title. He coached Milos Ronic, who I think of as one of the brainier players in tennis these days. I, don't, I know that's not unanimous, but I, I'm pretty sure about it. And now he seems to be a key part of Team Djokovic. And I think if you, if you predicted that on you know, August 1st, 2001, people would have laughed in your face at this idea that Goran Ivanisevic would become a respected coach of multiple Grand Slam titleists. So what does, what does Ivanisevic bring to, say, team Djokovic that would lead Novak to keep him around for so long? Um, I, I think he brings a couple things. things uh, like Becker, you know, he's been there. Um, that's a big, that's a big part of it. Uh, you know, I always think it's very interesting that by the time, by the time Boris Becker joined team Djokovic, I'm pretty sure that Novak already had more grand slams than Boris Becker did. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd have to review the, the 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 dates, but you know, but this idea that 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 champion's mindset, but also been there, done that, you know that, and been there, done that, and understand what it's like, you know, understand what it's like to be serving for the match on center court at Wimbledon, you know that that's a really big part of it. Um, another really big part of it is quite simply that they share the same culture. I don't think it's an accident that. You know, Marian Vida was also from Eastern Europe. You know, there's there's a reason that Novak has had his biggest success is with, you know, people from not just from the not from the former Yugoslavia, because obviously Slovakia is not that, but from the part of the world that he's from. I think it's really important for player um, and coach to, you know, get each other. And as many people have said, it's just not as simple as taking, you know, a great former player and a great current player and putting them together. In fact, Vida himself made this comment the other day, uh, you know, and he used the example of, um, I can't believe I'm actually going to say this person's name and, you know, draw attention to this, but he used the example of Alexander Zverev and Ivan Lendl, you know, that basically you can't, there's a great player, there's a great former player who's had success as a coach, put them together, and it, it doesn't necessarily work. So a big part of it, I think, is just interpersonal chemistry and feeling comfortable around that other person because you're going to be around them 24-7, you know, during the weeks of the year that you're together. So enjoying each other's company, uh, you know, getting the other person's sense of humor, liking to play the same card games and board games. The other thing I think that Goran has brought, I mean, there are very specific things with regard to the game, you know, an emphasis on the, 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 the serve, you know, improving the serve, making his serve more of a weapon, an emphasis on, you know, net play, shortening points. That's been a big thing. Um, but I think uh, the other thing that Goran has brought is simplicity you know, um, before Goran was around, Novak was also working with um, Craig O'Shaughnessy. You know his, yeah, yeah, and like the stats and the everything. And Goran is kind of like the opposite of that. He's basically like, let's keep it simple, stupid. So you know, he he is he is in some ways a counterbalance to Novak's more um, everything all the time 
approach, you know, uh, Goran has described Novak as a sponge, you know, that somebody who is really soaking up and absorbing everything that's all around him. And he wants to learn and he wants to know things and he's intellectually curious. And that's, you know, something that has been in evidence for, you know, since he was a kid, but that sometimes it's just too much. And so I think in some ways, Goran serves as a, as a kind of gatekeeper, not like the media gatekeepers and not like a you know, security guard, but as a gatekeeper between Novak's tendency to overdo it, overstudy, overwork, you know, in different directions and just, just stay blocking out kind of everything else and just staying focused on the simple things. I think that's, that's a huge part of it. It is interesting to think about what the, what the, what a player needs from a coach when they've already won 20 majors, because obviously it's, it's, it's not technique. It's not really tactics. It's, it's mostly all that other stuff. And, and that makes a lot of sense and doesn't really force us to, to have to, 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 to go too far in reinterpreting even Isevich either. Right. We don't have to define him as this tennis mastermind. Uh, he can just be himself and be the guy who was successful without being a tennis mastermind and maybe bring some of that to Djokovic. Yeah, for sure. And I, I just think, I think there, you know, I, there's plenty of, um, you know, clips out there on Instagram and wherever that just shows that they're having a good time. You know, they're, they're enjoying themselves together, whether it's, you know, the off court stuff, whether it's during practice, there's, there's a kind of levity that, that Garan brings that I think is important. And, but, but, but also, I mean, I, I feel like I can't sort of stress this enough. It's really important for, for Novak in particular to feel understood. He, he does not feel understood a lot of the time. He doesn't feel understood by the press. Uh, he doesn't feel understood necessarily by, you know, fans full of big, you know, big, big stadiums full of fans. And so like to have somebody close to him who gets him, who he can be himself around. He doesn't have to be on guard like that, that trust. And as I mentioned before, I mean, these, these two guys have known each other since, since Djokovic was 14. So I, you know, I really think it's in many ways, it's a, it's a perfect, it's a perfect fit, even though, um, you know, there are other ways in which (laughs) Goran probably isn't the greatest influence precisely because he's Goran and he speaks his mind and he says things that, other coaches wouldn't say on the record. That makes him better for the press. Maybe they can, he can distract a little attention from what, what Djokovic says on the record. Sure. <laughs> sure. That, that could be one of the greatest services he provides. If they, maybe if they coordinated it a little better, I'm not sure they've really worked out that plan for themselves, but maybe yeah. inadvertently work. Yeah. Out that way. And I mean, the other thing, the other thing that maybe I haven't said, because it seems so obvious to me, but I'll say it. Barney Fenisovic is a very strong personality. He's going to say what he thinks. He's not a shrinking violet. He's not going to kind of, um, you know, use euphemisms. He's not going to sugarcoat it. He's, he's going to tell you what he thinks. And he's going to tell you if he thinks what you're, what you're doing is stupid. I mean, I would love, for instance, to have heard the conversations that I only can only assume took place between the vaccinated members of Djokovic's team, which is to say all of them, and Novak. Yeah. You know, because there's no way that they didn't have those conversations. There's just no way. Yes. I mean, I would be in favor of a Goran cam 
you know, just have a camera on Goron at all times. Like that would be, I would pay for that. I would pay for that streaming service. Well, there you go. That's his new, his, his next business. When, when Novak retires or moves on to a different coaching team, we'll just have the, the full-time 24-hour Goran Ivanisevich Twitch channel. And yeah, already got, already got one subscriber lined up. So I'm, yes. going to, I'm going to stop us there because we could easily talk about this stuff for another hour or more. But, uh, but I try to leave my listeners a little time to you know, eat and take care of basic hygiene needs. So Anna, thank you very much for joining me and sharing your insight on all this stuff. Well, thanks for thinking of me. And uh, I hope I didn't, you know, offend too many people in the process. Well, I mean, we, we try to balance it between offending some people, but, you know, not offending everybody. We've got to save a couple of listeners for my next episode. Yeah, I've been speaking with Anna Mitrich. Um, you can find her on Twitter, where I know she loves to interact with the most hateful members of the community, um, Anna <laughs> underscore Mitrich. And you can read her writing, including uh, the, the prologue of, of the book that, that you mentioned at anamitrich.net. So thank you very much for, for all your insights. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And this has been episode 114. And I'll see you next time. <laughs>